Welcome to Behavioral Health in the New Normal, a podcast developed by Prestige Community Resources, aimed at bringing healing back to our community through knowledge, expert advice, and positive messaging. The show is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige Community Resources, funded by SAMHSA in response to the challenges currently impacting our communities. Hosted by Paul Wells Sr., who uses over 30 years of extensive clinical social work experience to conduct insightful interviews with experts and professionals on a wide range of topics that impact the Washington, D.C. community. From behavioral health crisis to education to financial hardship and anything in between, this show will provide information and insights that will surely make a difference in your life. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the podcast series, The New Normal, COVID-19. And today, family, man, I got a special guest, community-based advocate, uh, business owner, Mr. Kevin Fields. Brother Fields, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Oh, no problem. All right, Mr. Right. Kevin Fields is a, a, a native Washingtonian, but he's also the owner of Threats, which is located at 1348 Good Hope Road Southeast. And he's going to share with us his experience, uh, not only as a business owner, but also as just a just a, a citizen, just a part of the community. We're going to focus today on and speak on the increase of violence in D.C. during the pandemic. And uh, Kevin's going to share with us some real stories about uh, loved ones and associates he's lost. And he's going to give us some tips on some measures we can take to help prevent violence and reduce the violence during the pandemic. Uh, Kevin, this is a strange time for us. And um, it's created and caused and promoted some uh, bad health uh, or unhealthy habits for many people because of the isolation and the despair and the depression that it's, it's kind of kind of um, excited, right? ignited. Um, it's, it's caused everyone to um, get a little tense, get, get a little get a little peculiar, as I would say. But before we, we jump into the discussion, tell us a little bit about you. Where you grew up? Uh, where you went to school? Uh, where's home? Where's home for you? Home for me is Washington D.C. Um, I grew up in Southeast Washington D.C. Yes, and also in Northeast Washington D.C. Uh, we moved uh, when I was in middle school. Okay. I, uh, I started right out here at the elementary across from uh, Prestige Community Resources. Uh, it's called Ketchum Elementary School. Yeah. I went to Kramer uh, Junior High School, and then I transferred uh, to Langley Junior High School in Northeast and attended McKinley Tech Senior High School uh, mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't graduate, but I did uh, obtain my GED, and I went back to, to school. I went to college uh, and obtained my uh, doctorate and our religious education. I'm also a social psychologist. So I believe in a community-based approach to what we do. So that's yeah. why I had this kind of hub thing here uh, with this store and this business that we have. This is more of a community drop-in, really yeah. not a business. But <laughs> look at that, look at that. Yeah, so. Um, I'm, I'm glad you clarified that. I didn't know you were a behavioral health specialist. So you use the business platform uh, to engage with people in the community and to provide some support and some empowerment. Is that what you're saying? Having enough loving people. That's what we say. Okay, and uh, our, our motto is just basically serving the community. It's okay. more than just the products and services here. Um, mm -hmm. Even in our business, we deal a lot with the issues of uh, violence okay. in, the, in the community, not just here in this community in particular, but in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we make custom designs in terms of like the rest in peace shirts and the mask okay. and things like that. So we're able to talk to families when they're yeah. going through these traumatic experiences with violence uh, and how that affects and impacts them. And we're able to help work them through that process just by just making those uh, memorial items. It could be a blanket, a pillow, it could be a chain, whatever it is. 
but we try to make sure we present their loved ones in a in a positive way. Yes. And uh, with my background, I understand it because I used to be in the streets. I ran in gangs. I ran in some of the most notorious gangs in in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of my friends were uh, incarcerated for life sentences. Yes. I was fortunate because I was much younger, so I wasn't uh, able to go to prison like they were. But mm -hmm. I still got in trouble. Yes, right. But um, you know, so I I committed my work in my life to, to serving our community and making things right. Uh, I've been a victim of violence myself. I've shot, been shot, I've shot someone before. Yes. Uh, I've been through the rigors of what this violence life is about. So I understand the trauma uh, wow. firsthand as wow. a victim and a perpetrator. Yeah. Um, and this is not for hood rep or cred or anything like that. Um, I did it for the wrong reasons, mm. the things that I was doing. I try to protect others. And uh, I had the skills that I have today, but I was using them in the wrong right. setting. And that's what I always tell young people. You have great talents and abilities. You just use them the wrong way. If we can get you into an avenue where you could see productivity from what you're doing and it don't transcend to you going to jail or using, losing your life, right. then we can help you find your purpose and move into that. Uh, Brother Kevin, what was the turning point for you? At what point did you, you readjust your focus and your vision? And, and when did you start walking in, in your divine right? Well, in 1991, mm -hmm. during the time our neighborhood, they had, the FBI was the first federal case in the Washington, D.C. area where the federal uh, FBI came in and arrested a whole neighborhood. This, oh, wow. you know, we had the Rayful Edmund thing. We had all these other right. street gangs that they locked up, but we were known as the R Street crew. Mm -hmm. And it was, we were the first that the FBI actually participated in a, in a federal investigation. Okay. Uh, I went to Maryland. I was arrested. Yes. And they said, well, you're going to get three to 20. This is what the judge said. We want to sentence you to three to 20 years. Hmm. I said, Your Honor, I can't do three to 20 years. He said, don't worry, son, just do what you can. Everybody erupted in laughter in the courtroom. I said, I didn't find that quite funny. No. <laughs> you said three to 20 means I can come home in 19 years. That's I can come right. home in 15 years. That's right. Uh, fortunately, what I didn't hear the judge say was she was suspending a portion of the sentence, but I still wow. had to do time in prison. Okay. And uh, when I when I was in prison, that's when yes. I was exposed to uh, the writings and the teachings of uh, Marcus Garvey. That's right. Um, Malcolm X. Um, I learned a lot of things, you know, like that. And it really increased my awareness about life itself. And I found out I was expecting a child while I was incarcerated. Okay. And um, I knew I couldn't come home and be the same person, you know, no. that I was. No. So I had to really shift my focus and uh, try to become a better person because I, I knew the streets just wasn't going to work for me at that point. And I had some sense. I had some knowledge and some skills. That's school right. was, was one of my, my saving graces uh, in elementary and middle and high school. I prided myself on uh, uh, being that, that student that was able to uh, achieve mm -hmm. scholastically. You know, I wanted all A's and stuff. But at That's the right. same time, after school, I hung with some of the worst people that the city had to offer. But Look during the that. day, I hung with the kids who were straight A's and we were in competition to see who could That's get right. these top grades. I really, I guess I really operated out of a, a lack of, I didn't have. So a lot of that was, I just wanted to make sure my appearance was okay. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, junior high, you know, you can get ridiculed a lot for your appearance, yeah, yeah. the way you look, your dress, and if you don't have yeah. this, you don't have that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I just engaged in that lifestyle for a need of, of, of a lack, you know, a lack of not having. I knew this was not for me, right. but I did it because I needed to compensate for what I didn't have. That's right. And um, 
But I always was into school and in times when I would get arrested, that was always my saving grace. And it's like, we can't lock him up. He right. do so good in class, right. give him a break. That's right. So they would put me in these group homes and shelter homes for years at a time. Right. Uh, when I was 13, I was probably one of the first people in the city to, hmm. um, as a teenager, to shoot someone in terms of, they had no laws on the books to really sentence me. You wow. know, they wanted to sentence me as an adult, but they said, you can't do that. We don't have a law mm -hmm. for that. They said, want to give him juvenile life. There was no rule against for that. Murray and Burry came out. We need to punish this guy to the fullest extent of the law. And I'm like, yeah. I'm only 13, you know? Yeah. And well, after me... Well, Kevin, what, what is a 13-year-old doing with a pistol? You know, that's what I was doing. That's yeah. what I thought I was doing. Yeah, they came to get thought. me. That's what I thought I was doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was going, you know, coming to help them. They were in a, one of my friends was in a fight. And yeah. he came and got us. You know, I was in the house, minding my business, getting ready for graduation, eighth grade. Um, and uh, he said, hey, man, I got this issue. I said, okay, well, let's go deal with the issue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what, you want to fight? Because they know I'm the type, hey, let's go. I okay. always wanted to get at the bully. I never liked bullies. So my yeah. thing was, if Understood. you are a bully, you got problems from me because I attack mm -hmm. bullies. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went straight head first. And the goal was not to go and hurt anyone. Oh, the goal sure. was to fight. Sure. Uh, but uh, one of my friends, he had a pistol and, you know, we, we talked and he, I said, well, you know what? You guys act like you don't know what you want to do. I'll fire the gun because you're scared, but I'm going to shoot in the air. I'm going to scare everybody. Okay. Uh, things you don't learn in life is when you handle in a pistol, sometimes right. it bucks. And uh, what you want to go in the air, that's sometimes right. don't. Yeah, and that's... I shot someone, actually I shot him in the heart, but they did not die, which mm. was, was God's intervention in my life at the time right. because uh, had that turned a different way, I probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. Well, it, it sounds uh, like God's been around and, and, and protecting you all of your yes. life from the very beginning. Because what yes. I'm here to say is you you, always, you had a dual identity almost. You were good academically and had all the talents and the gifts, but you also knew the streets and you were proficient there. You were gangster, so yes. It, you were gangster, right. And so you had to at some point make a choice. It sounds like your awakening really occurred during your experience of incarceration. And but once again, you studied, you, you, um, you pursued knowledge and, and you engaged in learning and, and developing your mind, your body and your spirituality, I'm sure. How long were you incarcerated? Uh, three years. Three years, okay. Three years yeah. too long. Yes. Um, but, you know, in the work that I do, because I worked with mandated clients most of my career, uh, you know, I've had many consumers tell me that it was the handcuffs that saved their lives. Meaning if they didn't have that pause, uh, that mandated pause, that forced arrest, that uh, they might not even be here today to tell the story. But do, you, do you think that's the case for you, that the three years yeah, actually saved your life? I agree. I was able to adapt to my situation. I kind of made it work for me. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of putting myself in a position where you, one wouldn't even think that I was incarcerated other than I couldn't leave the building. That's yeah. the kind of freedom that my intelligence afforded myself That's in right. the institution that I could move freely as others couldn't. You know, they'd be like, why is he walking with no chains? That's why right. he always can do, you know, but I had freedoms that they didn't have because of my intelligence. That's uh, right. I had jobs that allowed me to you know, control and work on computers when folks are like, why is he on a computer? Right, <laughs> but right. these are, you know, so I was able to adapt to that situation. Look but at that. It, the pause itself really helped me to adjust and refocus. And when I found out I was bringing a, a daughter into the world, mm. I think that really impacted me because yes. I think it was a son I might have machoed up. That's but right. Because it was a daughter, 
That's uh, right. Because it was a girl, it, it 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 made me say, you know what? I need to do something better with myself. Absolutely. Yeah. And, can you and share what, some, Can you share mm -hmm. your daughter's name? Uh, her name is Najee. Najee, beautiful. Who named her? Uh, her mother. It means to swim. That's right. <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. I respect the fact that you're committed to uh, the well-being of your daughter and that she, she somehow also influenced your decision and, and, and yes. your choice at that time. Um, and you, again, you had, you had to make another choice. Either I'm going to be here for my daughter or I'm going to continue down this path of destructive tendency. Yes. Hey, listen, have you ever seen someone get shot before? Uh, numerous times, yes. Yeah, I have too. And, and, and what, what happens is we begin to somehow normalize it, uh, particularly if you've had multiple encounters of it, right? It, it kind of becomes normal, but it's not normal to see someone in an urban context get shot. Have you seen someone get killed before? I have, I have as well. And in fact, when I take a moment just to reflect back, I can actually relive the moment very vividly. I mean, I have my own PTSD. Now, I grew up in an era where when, when there was conflict, you know, we, you have to use your hands. And so when I was growing up to, for, for, for guns to be used, that wasn't pretty, that wasn't very common. Not in my era. I'm a 60s baby, so I was, I was born in 1963. So my first encounter with a pistol was my neighbor got shot on the stoop, on the front step by a drive-by. Unheard of in those days because, you know, we used to fight, and if you couldn't fight, well, you... You have some problems every if you couldn't fight every day you're gonna have a problem. <laughs> you have right? a problem, that's right. But now there's a there's an almost immediate tendency to go get go get that pistol and, and to really make sure that you resolve the conflict permanently. What's different? How has this pandemic, if if at all, influenced the violence in DC? Have you noticed any new trends? violence is uh these trends are i think anxiety based trends mm -hmm. because of what we're noticing as where we you know myself as uh being the executive director of a nonprofit, and we are working in uh, violence interruption services in the district of columbia mm -hmm. we were working in one of the worst neighborhoods in the city because we're in simple city and benton park uh area in southeast and that's notoriously bad for the violence yeah. you know and what we're noticing is a lot of the conflicts in the area as well as the other area that we work in which is Wingate and oak park in southwest mm -hmm. um we're noticing the interpersonal conflicts now as opposed to groups going That's at each right. other and I, I can That's attribute right. a lot of that to COVID. we're seeing a lot of stabbing incidents mm -hmm. increase and okay. stabbing uh you know we had a guy just a couple <laughs> months ago on the two streets on danbury over in southwest mm -hmm. um he's running around with his with his underwear on up and down the street he stabbed someone in the neck in the house and they said well what happened this guy's never like this right i think the anxiety of being at home this is a working man who's used to being out and doing things the anxiety related to COVID really perpetuated that violence that's right and we're see we've seen several incidents for that just last friday we had two brothers where the police had to come in and, and physically remove them both and arrest both of them because right. had they not come, they these two guys would have would have killed each other, or exactly. one would have killed the other, and it was so minute as a bag of potato chips and an argument over the Super Bowl that didn't take place yet. You know, we wasn't even at right. the Super Bowl on Sunday. We talking <laughs> Friday. So, so there is some mental health component to uh, what's prompting the violence and maybe the origin of some of the violence, um, and we know. In our community, uh, mental health is underdiagnosed, not diagnosed, not treated, undertreated. Uh, and then if you uh, lay on top of that substance use, 
it only exacerbates and magnifies the emotional dilemmas uh, that our young men and women have to grapple with. And so what we found during the pandemic that the admissions to psychiatric institutions has increased, the admissions, uh, voluntary admissions and involuntary admissions to drug treatment centers have increased. And I think you're right on it, Brother Kevin, that the isolation and the uncertainty uh, related to the pandemic and where we are going or not going has uh, really influenced uh, some of this rage and some of this anger and, and some of this impulsivity. Uh, people are just acting emotionally, uh, not really clear what's, what's prompting it, uh, but the agitation uh, is what we're seeing on the mental health side, that people are just walking around angry and frustrated and stuck. And all it takes is the slightest irritant to trigger this un, um, uncaged rage sometimes. And that's what you're seeing. Um, do you, are the streets more dangerous now than maybe five years ago or 10 years ago? What's the difference? The incidents are dangerous because of the weapons that they have access to. Right. Um, in the past, it's been maybe a one or a two shot. Now you're hearing as many as 30, 40 shots at a time. It's a miracle that more people are not being harmed in these incidents because, and I attribute that to those who, you know, these folks having a lack of knowledge or skill when it comes mm -hmm. to, to actually aiming and, and firing a weapon. Yeah. Uh, that's a blessing because right. we, should, we would see more incidents of more people being hurt, uh, especially when they drive past shooting. And it's amazing that one person, they say only one person got shot and you like, the many, how many bullets? Right. You know, so that's that's a problem. And like you said about the substance abuse, uh, a lot of these young folks are using substances, especially marijuana, and the more aggressive versions of the marijuana to, to medicate those mental health issues that's undiagnosed, like you said, that's PTSD. Right. I mean, you're constantly doing funerals. Funerals seem to be more of importance in the community now than graduation. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And it's yeah. like they have yeah, right. these big extravagant events for the funeral. You know, it's like, hey, I'm going to put a picture on the coffin. I want to uh, uh, have him on a horse with the glass. And, you know, right. thousands of dollars are spent. Uh, we should spend that money getting that tassel because the tassel is worth the hassle. Yeah. It's just that we don't view it like that. You Ooh. know, we see, we just see these caskets and it's like, will I be on the shirt? Will they have a birthday celebration and do a balloon release? They go into the grave site. And all this is just un- like you said, that undiagnosed mental issues that's going yeah. on. We, we're moving from depression and, and grief and things like that. And yeah. now we're moving straight into just straight mental problems. I mean, you, you have mothers that's constantly on social media talking about their loss of their children, never that's being right. able to get over it as if they were still physically in the house, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And without yeah. some intervention, we, we're going to be in trouble. You know, we're going to be right. in trouble because yeah. these issues, like you said, they will exacerbate. And uh, like I said, we went from, two, in 2019, we had 160 murders. Uh, uh, to now, we have 200 murders last year. So, um, and we're starting a trend of every other day since the beginning of this year, we've had a murder That's in right. the district. And wow. we're not looking good when we look at that. Um, no, the issues, you know? Yeah. And uh, a lot of folks and proponents of for balance prevention, you know, are saying, hey, we need more funds. But then you had those opponents saying, hey, we threw $50 million at this problem. Mm -hmm. And we still got, we, we have 34 more murders than we had the previous year. Right. This is not working. Right. The, uh, so, the data is not supporting, right. Keep yeah, putting, it's not supporting the that's change. Right. That's right. And, 
you know, you, you said that we're going to be in trouble, and I agree with you. In fact, I believe we're already in trouble. You know, again, I kind of reflect to, to my experience, and back in the day when me and my, my friends were on the block, we still somehow maintain a certain level of respect for the community and particularly the elders. We still were able, even if we were beefing amongst each other, that if Aunt Sally or Miss Mary came down the street, we moved out the way, we stopped cursing, we put the bottles behind our back, you know what I'm saying? There was still a certain amount of respect for the community. Listen, in summer 2020, I was coming out of the clinic. The clinic had closed at 8 o'clock at night. Just as I stepped out of the clinic on Good Hope Road, I pop, 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 pop. man, I ran, I didn't run. Well, I probably did run. I ran up Minnesota Avenue because I parked my car on T Street. Now, I know what a gunshot sounds like. Unfortunately, regrettably, when you live in the neighborhood, you know what a gunshot, there's, there's no confusion about that. Walk hastily to my car, and the youngest must have went through the alley, will come running up T Street towards me. Let me tell you, brother Kevin, I didn't know what to do. In fact, I froze because I see six youngins walking towards me. One has the pistol in his hand. And I didn't know what do I, do I move, do I run, do I shout, do I scream? Do... And the youngin with the pistol in my hand gave me such a blatant and, 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 and uh, a strange stare. He looked me dead in my eyes and walked by me almost casually like you know I just went shopping at the grocery store I, I, I was moved by the experience because I didn't know how to respond to these young men and I was fearful for my life I was fearful because I didn't have a connection with them. I didn't have a connection with them and and I imagine that there's a lot of young men who just don't have the the support and guidance that they need to to communicate some of those challenges that you've identified, the PTSD syndromes, the depression, the anxiety. Where do, how do they, where do they go for that information? So anyway, what do we do to prevent violence? What have you found helpful in, in your work? We, we operate what is called the uh, Cure the Streets model, which is a gang uh, violence prevention model where we look to mediate conflicts in the community between individuals or groups. Uh, we try to identify those who are uh, considered high risk. We, we operate what is called the uh, Cure the Streets model, which is a gang uh, violence prevention model, where we look to mediate conflicts in the community between individuals or groups. Uh, we try to identify those who are uh, considered high risk, mm -hmm. those who are, have been a victim of the violence or a perpetrator of the violence. So we work with these individuals. Uh, we treat those individuals in terms of identifying services and supports. Yeah. This is where we would say, hey, we need to connect you with a mental health, health uh, specialist or a support center right. to address some issues that might come up in when we assess them. Right. Uh, we deal with the job and we deal with all the other issues trying to, you know, with substance abuse and employment and stuff like that. But then we also look at uh, if you got these mental health issues, we know that we're not capable of addressing those, so right. we just make the referrals. Right. Like in our Ward 8 site, we have a, a mental health uh, clinic right next door to us. So we just say, hey, we're going to walk you That's on right. over. We're going to make this connection. We're going to keep the service right here That's right. in the community so we can address your issue. Oh, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I like the community-based mental health concept because you have to really understand the culture of the neighborhood, the perspective of the client. Right. You have to be familiar with all of the nuances that 
that the consumer has to has to interface with on it. And not all trained clinicians can understand the DC culture and the, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, and mm -hmm. so, there, and there has to be some sensitivity to the experience as well. Um, how hard is it to, to direct someone, especially young African-American men and women into mental health treatment? Have you found that kind of difficult? <laughs> yeah. Very difficult because it's the issue of accepting that they have an issue, uh, right. having a problem and need help. They tend to mask their behavior with the drug use. That's right. Um, it's the pills, it's the marijuana, yeah. it's the drinking. Uh, but we, we're because we're seeing a, a, a major increase. I watch the young people. We have a methadone clinic here in the community, right. and I watch the young people walk past every day seeking to purchase some kind of drug in terms of pills and stuff that's like right. that that they can use to deal with some of those issues that they mm -hmm. have. Yeah. Um, so that's where part of the struggle is. They're trying to self medicate instead of saying, Hey, let me go see a specialist and get some real, you know, therapy so I that's can right. deal with some of these issues. Yeah. Um, I know in this community, we just experienced about eight deaths in the past year. And these were not, not normal, it's not natural. You no, know, and some of the not. people that lost their lives, you're like, wow, this shouldn't have happened to this person. They, they, yeah. they, they punching the wrong clock in some of these issues. So these are the things that we, we look at that, hey, you know, you know we need to, to really address because so many of these young people, they just living under this constant threat of violence. When I'm gonna be next, you hear stuff like that. Constant um, threat. Right. Just recently, the, the young man that was shot in the store here on Good Hope Road, mm -hmm. where we had five of them, I knew three of the victims, you know, I knew mm. three of them. Uh, I coached that young man when I was coaching at Kramer Middle School. I coached him when he was in middle school, good kid, always was the one who went the opposite way. You right. know, when everyone decided to do the bad, he said, well, you know what, I'm gonna do this. He wow. wanted to go to school for film. He, went, he was in college, wow. you know, and he was only there with his mom. She went to get some coffee, he went in the store. Uh, and he walked into a shooting, you know what I'm saying? One of the guys mm -hmm. that was shot was a friend of his, so they mm -hmm. was exchanging words like, hey, are you doing you know? And uh, one guy that got shot, unfortunately, he was just walking up the street, and uh, we, he stopped me as I was opening, and we was talking, he said, I'm going to play my numbers, because at the mm -hmm. ATM, and he was just in playing his numbers, he got shot, fortunately, mm -hmm. he made it. But when you look at these issues, the young guy who lost his life, the reason why I was explaining this is because one of his friends was recently killed last year in, in uh, August. And he told his mother exactly how he wanted his funeral. And you say, wow, what, I mean, but that's what he's consumed with. Even though he's going to college, that's he's right. consumed with planning his funeral, what he right. wanted. And his mother actually fulfilled his wishes, what he wanted on his coffin, how he wanted it to go, the balloon thing, the colors. He told her all of these things. And that's the trauma we're talking about. But that's, that's absolutely. that mental. And even though he's in college and he was excelling in school, mm -hmm. we're still dealing with the fact that that's how the violence impacted him because right. not only did he lose him, but he lost another friend a few months after that. And then he lost another friend that he was in school. So it, it's like a perpetual problem. Yeah, and these yeah. are not, you know, you know beefs. this is inter-neighborhood stuff, you know, and, and we, we got to... Mm -hmm. And how depressing must it be when you, you don't have any expectation around longevity of life? That, that your your own definition of life expectancy is 25 years old. Now, if I make it to 25, I'm doing good. Listen, Brother Kevin, you talked about trauma and impact it had, has on all of us. How do you deal with the losses? See, you're connecting with the brothers and the sisters. You have relationships with them. Some of them you, you watch develop and grow. And um, 
and then you hear of a loss and you you, you experience the, the death of one of your mentees and, and what impact has death and dying had on you directly? It's had a uh, significant impact on me. This young man was shot and killed just a week ago. I coached him. A month ago, I lost another young man who was shot and killed, who played for me when he was 12. Wow. This was a kid who was in college. He was only home in Washington, D.C. to prepare for his master's, and the COVID had, you know, disrupted his schooling. He was just waiting to start his master's program, and he lost his life. Walking to the store, and because he's always been associated with a neighborhood, hey, he's lived there all his life. He saw some guys who had beef with his neighborhood. These guys know this guy doesn't participate in the beef, right. but because he's considered that's one of them, uh, they exchanged words. He had his little three-year-old daughter. They shot him. Ironic, his funeral was the same day that this young man was shot in the mm. store. Who And in Little League Ball, um, he played and um, he was killed in a similar situation, walking his girlfriend to her Uber. And their neighborhood mm. had beef with another neighborhood. And they said, we're going to shoot the right. first guy that come out that we see. And they was hiding. And when he right. came out, they chased him in the building, took his life. And this is a guy I watched one, I watched him in Pampers when he came into the world. I watched him in daycare. I watched him grow up to be 20 years old and lose right. his life. Uh, these right. deaths like this, and I can go on and on because there's so many of my young right. guys that I've, exactly. I've watched because I've, I've either coached them or them in right. the community. I used to help my son with his music stuff. So we would go around and we would work with right. a lot of right. these guys. Um, so it has been very impactful on me, you know, very impactful. It, it shapes the work that we do. It, it, it pushed my commitment. I begin mm -hmm. to, to go into myself and say, what are some things I can do? Because this hurts a lot. So I, you know, I started yeah. finding ways to just take care of myself. Uh, De-escalate. Yeah. I take time in the morning for myself. I, I, I committed to my workout regime. I read, I study, yeah. I, I try to air my head That's out. Right. I try to clear my emotions and stuff. Uh, because I know I'm constantly dealing with this, even in, in my business or in my program, we're dealing with violence all day. That's, that's the right. topic. And a lot of times, all, we, that's all, all we're talking about is violence. So I have to find releases. And um, so that's what I do. I look for different yeah. things. I think I'm going to start my video thing back with the video games. The music so that's, used that's, to help me, but the young people don't want to, they want to talk violence, so I can't do violence. So I'm like, no, that's right. I'm doing this all that's day. Right. I can't keep hearing this that's killing right. and stuff, you know? So, right. You know, that self-care piece is critical for, for, the, for the provider. Um, you know, I'm a field instructor with Howard School of Social Work and School of Psychology. And one of the, the seminars that I really focus on is self-care because we know that the provider, the person in the community is suspect and subject to um, receiving the pathology that they, they're exposed to all day. And so there is a tendency for the provider, the frontline worker to become depressed, to, 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 to be filled with anxiety. We actually assume and take on some of the psychological characteristics of the people that we work with all day every day and so i really appreciate some things you said you know you're studying you you already told me you, you were in the gym. You <laughs> let me the say gym. this what what you just said was real a few months ago i think back in september i had to check myself because yeah. i was at a level of wanting to commit violence myself that's because right because i was so frustrated yeah. with what was going on i'm like wow well, i had to check myself I'm like hey, hey bring that back down that's right because i'm you know i'm making the situation worse for myself that's right just for that's myself right. in a situation that i know really doesn't even concern me that i can negotiate my way out of it 
right. but the anxiety and stuff and just the frustration of yeah. every yeah. time I turn around, you know. And I that, know that it. Just, I know it. Crushes, and, and, it crushes you. Yeah, and you and you get in a state of hopelessness yourself because you're so passionate and fully engaged, and and you want things to change. And you, every time you turn around, you're like, "Oh, here we go again." Do you have a mentor? Do you have a support system? Uh, I have a you know, couple. I tell my staff, I tell my staff, man, every good therapist should have a therapist. You know, I have a couple. I have a couple. Good. Uh, Excellent. People. Um, that I that I communicate with that kind of helped me de-escalate. Uh, one good, he works good. with uh, Prestige Resources as uh, Will Barnett. Oh I yes, met him. I met him when I began my journey. Uh, um, I, he was he was teaching the Certified Addiction Counseling course. Right. This was in 1995. I was in the in the class. I'm probably one of the youngest ones in the class. Yeah, and uh, we also worked together again when we were at the C Social Program, um, the uh, Court Services Tenant Supervision Agency. Um, he was working there as a, a manager and I was coming in facilitating therapy group uh, 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 instructor there myself, but I left and started yeah. doing my own work Isn't and then I came something? back. So we've always been connected through the years. Uh, when I worked at the detox clinic, he was running the second Genesis that. program. So we was always connected. And when he came up to Prestige, he was working there. He walked down, oh, Kev, and we got to talking. Look I think I that. ran into him in a grocery store. I'm Look like, wow, that. I haven't seen you in years. And next thing you know, now we Look see each that. other all the time. Yeah, Mr. So, Barnett has been impactful. He's been a, a true champion. Uh, and you, you spoke at the Reentry and Sanction Center where he worked. I was the deputy director there for 11 years. And I worked with, when Will was there, we, we worked very closely together. That Reentry and Sanction Center was, uh, I, I still think was the flagship uh, in terms of helping folks come home and, and, and put both feet in, in the ground. Listen, you know what? I used to work with Vietnam vets in my training. When I went to graduate school, and this is the, the late 80s, I worked with combat vets who were suffering with PTSD. And I'll tell you one thing for sure. One, one thing for mm -hmm. sure. I hear more exposure to trauma from our youngins on the streets than I ever heard from a combat veteran. And you, you mentioned earlier that that constant threat of, of violence, if it's not operationalized or, or, or going on at the moment, the constant threat um, uh, is disturbing. Listen, is there any good news? Is there any, do you have a, a, a positive forecast you can share? Is there anything um, that you're excited uh, that's on the horizon that might change things around? Any new programs, resources, services? Is there hope for our community, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes, it is some hope. Um, I've been searching and looking for young folks that I could tap into. Uh, we started a youth group. Uh, we call it Love Notes. Uh, we have it Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. We're doing it on Zoom right now. Okay. Um, Department of Employment Services gives us some funding to provide uh, internships for these young folks. Uh -huh. um, and I got them from all over the city. Right now we have 36 young people. And we go at it three days a week, looking at different strategies that we can implement to help their group and to help them make it. We got folks that's captains of debate teams. We got them from every level, from those who say they the worst of the worst to the best of the best. And we using their skills and knowledge to help us implement and shape some programs that we want to develop to help these young folks. Uh, and we want to raise up the next generation of uh, change agents. That's what we need because in this field, that's right. and there's, and with this gap and now with the issues of in the city with gentrification and all, a lot of the folks moving here, they're not interested in helping anyone. That's right. They just want to come in, enjoy the coffee, have some fun, you know, 
and, right. and, and the nightlife, have some good times, yeah. but they're yeah. not here for the social stuff. They're not here for That's the right. philanthropic stuff. I've, they've offered me money and donations. Hey, I'll give you some money to your cause, but right. you know that's about it. I don't want to do anything else. I'll help pick up some trash. I got that. That's, that's right. it. Beautify the neighborhood. But um, we have to raise our next group of, of change agents. Yeah. And I realize it's incumbent upon me because when I was yeah. young doing this, uh, I looked at people like Will Barnett, uh, uh, um, Rico Rush, Tyrone that's Parker with the Alliance of Concerned Men, uh, yeah. Al Malik Furkan, right. uh, who sees fire, don't smoke the brothers. Uh, I looked at these guys because they were the ones who they were younger and their hair, you know, they was really in their heyday. And I feel it's incumbent upon me to do what they did for me in terms of I got all that knowledge. Reverend Isaacs will be East of the River, clergy, police partnership. Oh, you know so all. many of these guys. That's right. And they, they imparted all this. And then even at the, uh, what you called the reentry center, but when we were there, it was the assessment and orientation center right. from 96. That's yeah, I was right. there in working in 96 there. And I think I left in 99. Okay. But, uh, Kevin Lineberger and Dr. James Lanier. That was yes. another person who was one of my greatest mentors. That's who right. sold into me, you know, and I, may he rest in heaven forever. May he rest uh, in peace. I love this guy Ooh. that uh, came up with us. So I, I know a lot of, but yeah. see, I was younger and I sat under these guys and I soaked yeah. it up. I soaked it like a sponge. Now what I'm mm. trying to do is impart into these younger folks and raise this next generation and do what they did for me and get this new group of uh, change agents. We have to help these young folks find their purpose. And that's what we're doing. Brother Fields, I'm moved by your verbal display of, of the historical giants, th those who have been in the trenches and have remained. Oh, Roach Brown, forgot him. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, you know them all. So you, you've had some opportunity to really uh, witness the modeling of, 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 of which the philosophy that you're promoting. Uh, Mr. Fields, I, I want to say Kevin Tyrone Fields. Kevin Tyrone Fields. We appreciate you. The name of your nonprofit again is what? Actor Incorporated. Listen, I know people are going to view this podcast and want to know how to get in touch with you directly. What's the best method to reach you? www.fatherfactorinc.com. Repeat that one more time, please. www.fatherfactorinc.com. Okay. Mr. Fields, I salute you on behalf of the citizens of the District of Columbia and just the black man in general. Man, it's, it's been a marvelous uh, moment that I've spent with you and I thank you for being transparent about your personal journey and your professional experience. Um, I know it's, it's gonna be helpful and I know people are gonna reach out to you and I'm encouraging people who wanna lend their support uh, to the nonprofit either or with donations or just hands-on. You want to get in there and roll your sleeves up. I'm, there's plenty of work to be done. Uh, Kevin, we wish you well. We're going to continue to pray for you and your business and your family. Uh, give, your you. give your daughter a hug and a kiss uh, from Prestige, <laughs> the Prestige family. And uh, right. I want to say to the viewers, um, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I know you've been um, moved by the testimony of Mr. Fields. Uh, and the service he's providing our community. If you want more information about who we are and what we do, visit our website at prestigecommunityresources.org. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.